I would invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, uh, to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. And as you're doing so, uh, I'd like us to, we are, uh, to... We are in the midst of our series entitled Snapshots. And we're going through these snapshots of the book of Psalms. Psalms is by far and away the largest book in the entirety of Scripture. I have 100, 150 chapters. And these psalms are poems or songs written by different individuals through different periods of time and through different circumstances, chronicling their experience in life. Some are, as we see up here, some are filled with hope. Some are, are desperate cries and pleas for forgiveness. There's others that have just great anxiety. And some are just jubilation and praise. While there are others that are filled with great and indescribable pain. As it's been said before, and we've said in the past few weeks, there have been more tears cried on the pages of the Psalms more than any other book within Scripture. It, it represents the entire spectrum of life and what individuals have gone through. Now today's psalm is one of my absolute favorite psalms. It's Psalm 51. And I think of the number 51. And I want you to remember this number. Psalm 51. Not 50. 51. And that's why I've entitled this message Area 51. Now, you are undoubtedly familiar with the concept of Area 51. Area 51 is this, it's a, it's a division of Edwards Air Force Base, which is in California, but Area 51 is in southern Nevada, Nevada, and it is the place of all these alien UFO conspiracy theorists. It's a closely guarded secret. And so all these conspiracy theorists go there and they gather at the gates of Area 51 because they long to make contact or find out about something beyond our world about aliens. Now, I don't believe in aliens, but I do believe in a transcendent God who has made Himself known through Jesus Christ. And I believe that God has given us this psalm that we might find connection with the transcendent one. That whenever we want to experience God, in essence, we have sinned and messed up. And this is what this psalm is about. It's about someone who messed up royally in their life. But it is a reminder to us that we want to reconnect with God that we have to go to Area 51. That's why I want you to remember that number, 51. So whenever you sin in life, you can remember, I need to go to 51. Psalm 51 to connect with God, the transcendent one. Now, this is what we call one of the penitential psalms, meaning an individual who is repentant. And there are six of the, or seven such penitential psalms found in Scripture. And again, a penitential psalm is a psalm in which the speaker confesses sin, expresses sorrow for sin, describes the effects of guilt, and petitions God for forgiveness and or celebrates God's forgiveness according to the Literary Study Bible. Now again, there are seven within Scripture. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. But this one is probably the most famous because undoubtedly, if you've been in Christ for any period of time, maybe this is new to you, but you've probably heard, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God. That's found here. That's one of the most probably well-known parts of this passage. Now, many of these penitential psalms, we don't necessarily know the circumstances or surrounding a psalm and what was going on. Sometimes we don't know exactly who the author is, but most of the psalms are, are from King David. Now, King David, he is known as a man after God's own heart. He's a godly guy. He's the warrior poet. He is the great king, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I mean, he's a man's man, but he's also very in touch with his emotions and what's going on around him. He's a warrior. But he's also a musician, and he's a shepherd. And he's this just amazing king that God honors. But he's also a man that also knew what it meant to have a terrible fall. And this psalm records is written right after he is confronted with one of his greatest and terrible falls. And that is after he committed adultery. So I'd like us to look at this psalm today. We're going to be reading all 19 verses. It's our uh, custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, and I'll be reading all 19 verses as we read David's response after he was confronted with the reality of his sin. And we see that God lays this forth for us as an example of how we should respond 
during times of sin when we have fallen. Look at Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem that you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we come before you We come before You asking You to bring home this truth. Lord, there are so many here today that are struggling with sin, even this morning, even last night, and they are bearing unbelievable guilt. Lord, it might even been in the past few weeks or months or even years, decades. But Lord, I pray that You bring Your Holy Spirit's conviction upon that individual today and help us to understand what it means to confess, to truly reconnect with You. Lord, convict us of our sin. Show us the reality of how our sin affects not only You, but our relationship with You. And Lord, please show us what it means to be restored to You in right relationship, that we might walk as children of light, truly transformed to reflect the glory of the Lord in every aspect of our daily lives. Lord, we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned before, this psalm comes directly on the heels of David's affair and cover-up involving Bathsheba in her pregnancy. It was a scandal du jour in the ancient world. I mean, we have our share of scandals involving politicians in our world today, do we not? Think about some of the things we've seen in the headlines this past week, if you've kept up with the news. And not only Anthony Weiner, but there's other names, such as Bill Clinton, our own president. John Edwards, a former presidential candidate. Mark Foley, John Ensign. Mark Stanford, Elliot Spitzer, and as of the past couple of weeks, Anthony Weiner. Each of these men sinned in a terrible way, though some through some type of affair or even sexting scandal, and the repercussions for such actions have resulted in unbelievable shame, loss of credibility, and even resignation. The most recent of the scandals, the one involving around Anthony Weiner, merited his resignation this past week. Now the question for him is, I think, what does he do now? Or what should he have done differently? I mean, there's many things, obviously, but even after it came known of what his sin does, how should he have responded? Where should he turn? I like what Albert Moeller, Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary. It's the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist denomination, the biggest denomination within the United States of America. And he is a, he's a, a, a great acad- uh, academician. He's an amazing man of God, scholar. He's in the public eye and just a man of great integrity and leadership. And he's very perceptive at culture. And he uses social networking greatly. And on his Twitter account, he said this, Dear Congressman Weiner, There is no effective treatment for sin because remember, he asked for a period of time away to get treatment for his condition. And Albert Muller said, Dear Congressman Weiner, there is no effective treatment for sin, only atonement found only in Jesus Christ. What came after that has become a scandal in and of itself. Muller writes on his blog after some different things and he chronicles what happened. He says, As far as I know, Representative Weiner is not among my followers on Twitter. I did not assume that he was reading my posting. 
My message was direct, most direct, mostly directed at my fellow Christians as a reminder of this very concern that this, the American impulse is to seek treatment when our real need is for redemption. This is a basic and central Christian belief. The Bible reveals that our need is not to find a way to make ourselves well, which we can never do, but to realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The Christian gospel is the message of redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in Him and in Him alone. The very essence of biblical Christianity is the knowledge that the real human problem is sin, not sickness, and that the only rescue is that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In response to my tweet, Kathy Lynn Grossman of USA Today posted a series of tweets on her own, including this. Top Baptist voice chides Jewish wiener for, uh, to choose Christ. Shades of Brit Hume telling Tiger Woods to quit Buddhism. Later, in response to a complaint on Twitter that she had slammed me by twisting my words, she responded, it's Moeller slamming Jews here. In a separate article, she wrote this, this reads as an evangelism tactic, writing in on the Wiener headlines, but aimed at people like Jews, such as Wiener, Buddhists like Woods, and many others, such as Wiener's Muslim wife, who hold different ideas about salvation, different approaches to atonement. He says, seriously? It is rather shocking to find the religion and spirituality writer of USA Today surprised that a Christian believes what Orthodox Christianity has consistently taught, that every single human being is a sinner in need of the redemption that is found only in Christ. I never mentioned Judaism. Representative Wiener's problem has to do with the fact that he's a sinner like every other human being, regardless of religious faith or affiliation. Christians, at least those who hold the biblical and orthodox Christianity, believe that salvation is found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Later, Kathy Lynn Grossman posted this response to criticism. What Moeller said was atonement only through Christ. Non-Christians disagree, also have routes to restoring righteousness. He writes, The exchange on Twitter is another sign of how politically incorrect biblical Christianity is becoming in our times. Christians do understand that non-Christians disagree with the gospel. We also understand that other religions claim routes to restoring righteousness. But biblical Christians cannot accept that these routes lead to redemption and that the only righteousness that saves, the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to the believer who is justified by faith in Christ alone. That is, the gospel is declared in historic Christian creeds and held at least by historic claim by almost all Christian churches and denominations. It is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith, deeply rooted in the teaching of Christ that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Me, John 14, 6. Non-Christians who have an understanding of Christianity may well find this claim offensive, but they should not find it shocking, even on Twitter. Now, Moeller's words, I believe, are right on. His call for Anthony Weiner to embrace Jesus just as Britt Humes to Tiger Woods to do the same were also right. There is no other way to find forgiveness, find hope, and find restoration except through Jesus Christ. David, like Anthony Weiner, was a Jew. And he knew that hope was only found through God. Now, we have to be, remember that Jesus wasn't in the world yet, although David himself had prophesied about the coming Messiah. And I guarantee that if David were here today, he would testify in the same words as Moeller. Because he understood that he himself was a sinner. That's why he says, for in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't the result of sexual immorality, but he was saying that I was born by nature a sinner. From the time I was in the womb, I had a sin problem. And each of us can testify that we are guilty of that same fact. Now before we can even break down this text, I want to lay some foundation, a foundation for, for us. First of all, I mentioned before that this psalm is by David, a man after God's own heart. He's the shepherd, the sweet psalmist, the warrior poet, and the great king. He's a great man, and he committed adultery. The fact that he did so is a reminder to us that any one of us in this room is capable of sinning greatly. And that's the first point that I want you to take home. Psalm 51 reminds us all that we have the capacity to sin greatly. I don't care who you are. David is the great king of Israel. I mean, this is a man who knew God's presence in a very amazing and tangible way. He is the leader of God's people. He is the author a great deal of the scriptures that we have in our Bible. And this guy committed adultery. 
Do not think that you are completely immune to any type of sin. You can sin in a great capacity, and it can result in great shame and scandal. I remember standing before a professor of mine when I was in college, and I was dealing with a sin in my life, and I went to him for counsel, and I said, how do I stop this sin? I was looking, what did the Word of God say? And, and, and some, uh, perhaps some greater and wiser counsel, he just looked at me, and he said, make up in your mind that you're not going to do it. And I said, no offense to you, prof, but you're, that's the dumbest answer I've ever heard in my life. That's like saying, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just will it. That's not what according to the Word of God. I mean, the Word of God does say, be careful lest you yourself be tempted in restoring another brother. and also says that we are to be on guard. But we also know that according to the Word of God, that God provides a way of escape from temptation. I mean, we need to be able to build a biblical defense against temptation. Not just get it in our head that we're not going to do it. Because some of the greatest scandals are individuals who said, I'm not going to do that. And then they fell. We all must walk hum- humbly before God, knowing the sins so which we can easily give ourselves into, get, just let ourselves go into. We must know that each of us has the capacity to sin greatly. I mean, David didn't start off that way. He didn't start off just saying that he was going to sin against God. The details of David's affair are found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you want to, I would encourage you to turn with me to that chapter. It's in the Old Testament. It's just uh, you know, not too far away from where our text is today. And, and we read what happened. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, I'm just going to skip through the details of this to help set the foundation for what happens with David so we can get a great and adequate response and see, really understand the words of Psalm 51. So I'm going to skip through these rather fast because we have a lot of points today. But all of them I, I really want to get to because they are very important. Starts off, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, 2 Samuel 11, 1, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So David was supposed to be doing something and he wasn't doing. All too often, that's how temptation strikes us. We're to be doing something that we have a responsibility for. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. David was a king that was supposed to be out to war, but he wasn't. And he's in Jerusalem. The idle idle hands are the devil's playground. There we go. So that's, he, he's, he's walking on the roof of his house when he sees one Bathsheba. She doesn't know exactly who it is. He beholds that she is a beautiful woman. Now, some think she was on the roof. Some think he was spying into a window. And it says in the text that she was cleansing herself. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. So it's late. So I'd say around 5, 6 o'clock. And when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And we learned that she was bathing. It was a very special way. Not to be gross, but it was a woman cleansing herself from her, from, from her menstrual cycle. That's what's going on. You can see that within the text coming on. She has clean, she's cleaning herself from her menstrual or impurity is what it's seen within Scripture. So she is in the nude. And he's seeing her do this. Now, why, how he can have access to see her, I don't know. Why she's doing this in a view that he can see it, I don't know either. Some have hypothesized or theorized on why she was doing it. Perhaps she knew exactly what she was doing. We don't know. But whatever the case may be, David sees her. And he's severely attracted. He's lusting. And he, so he says, he sent and inquired about the woman in verse 3. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, there's a lot of things that are even there. Bathsheba actually is the daughter of Eliam, who is the son of Ahithophel, which is one of his counselors that we're going to see ends up leading and being a huge participant in the coup d'etat under his son Absalom later. So it's also one of David's most trusted counselors. And Uriah is called one of the 30. David had these mighty men. He had three, and he has what's called the 30. These are men of renown, kind of like his, his special ops, his, his secret service. And they are very loyal to David. Now, we learn that Uriah is a Hittite, okay? Which means that he is not a Jew, but he is, he is a foreigner. However, his name indicates that he is at least probably a convert to Judaism. And he is loyal to David. So he's fighting in David's army, even though he's not Jewish, because he loves David. So, verse 4, David sent messengers and took her and came to him and he lay with her. Now, there's a lot in this text that we're not getting. 
I mean, undoubtedly, when the messenger showed up at Bathsheba's door, the king wants to see you. I'm not sure she was going, wow, we're going to have a midnight affair. She probably went, wow, I have a private audience with the king. And that was an amazing privilege afforded to anybody to be called and summoned to the king. Undoubtedly, he might have wanted to inquire about the war and about her husband. But whatever the case may be, one thing leads to another, and they end up having an affair. They end up having sex and committing adultery. That's what's going on within this text. So verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's where we get this understanding that she had just finished her period. So in essence, he is, he's going to have intercourse with her, so it couldn't be... Uriah's child. The pregnancy didn't come from anybody else. It's from David. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So there had to have been some time. I mean, they didn't have EPT or first response in David's time. Okay? There wasn't the, the stick that had the two little lines. So some time had to pass. And that probably was, you know, 30 days. And she knew she was pregnant. And she sends the message to David that she is pregnant. Now David's thinking to himself, what do I do? What do I do? So David sent word to Joab, who's the leader of the army. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how, was Joab, uh, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, go home in the hope that he would have intercourse with his wife. That's his hope. But Uriah is devoted soldier. Now I've heard pastors theorize and they, they chastise Uriah for what he does next. And I, I don't think it's a legitimate thing that you, we can do in that he doesn't go home to his wife. And some are like, what a fool. He stays, he sleeps in the king's house. And he says the reason is, is because the ark of God is out. My comrades, my brothers in arms are out. How can I dare sleep with my wife when they are out in battle? I'd never do such a thing. So he is a man of principle. And he is, he is all about duty. And he doesn't want to afford himself of an opportunity that other men couldn't have. So he sleeps in the king's house. And the king had even sent a gift behind him, undoubtedly probably an aphrodisiac to set the mood. So that there would be a liaison between Uriah and his wife. And that it would be considered Uriah's son. But Uriah won't take the bait. Uriah doesn't do it. So David, a couple days goes by. David then has another plot. He takes another tactic. He has Uriah sit at his house. He feeds him, gets him totally drunk. In the hope that he'll go home with his wife. And then rather than doing that, he ends up sleeping around in the, the king's house on the floor with the king's servants. Or at least in the house. David realizes, you know what? No tactic that I'm going to do is going to be able to hit this guy. I mean, the time has really passed. I mean, it's already been a month. Maybe a little after that, it took Uriah some time to come back from the battle. So this pregnancy is going to come out. This baby is going to be born. No one's going to know it's Uriah. I had a small window, and even then it would be like the baby was premature. So what do I do? So he comes up with a very despicable and disastrous plot. Calls Uriah, gives him orders sends him back to the battlefield to Joab. The orders, and this is how dutiful of a soldier he is, he won't even read them. Even though in these very orders is his own execution. This is a devoted soldier. He is devoted to David. And he's devoted to God. He even cites the ark of God. And again, his name indicates that he was a follower of the one true God. This is, this is really setting the stage. And remember, this is the man. David is the man after God's own heart. So he goes off to battle. Joab reads the instructions. They rush, kind of like a bull rush of this, this wall. People were casting down arrows and stones in order to get him. And just at that moment in time, Joab says, draw back. And he leaves Uriah and he is killed. He sends messengers to David. Bathsheba mourns for the loss of her husband. And then David brings Bathsheba into his house and a son is born. So nine months has passed at least, or eight months later, because there was a month in between. But then some bone-chilling words appear at the end of chapter 11. It makes me shudder. The very last verse of 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
I mean, no one else knew. Maybe Joab had an indication, but no one else knew him and Bathsheba. It was all quiet, but it was God who knew what he had done. And that's the only person that really counts, is that God who knew. So now he's guilty of murder. First it was adultery, and then it's murder. He's, you know, he ordered the execution. He may not have pulled the trigger or threw the stone, but he set it up. And he's guilty. But then God sends Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and he tells a story. Chapter 12 says that Nathan came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was kindled. He's enraged against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, a man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then are the words that I'm sure echoed in David's mind. Nathan, this is a prophet, speaking to the king. He says, You are the man. You. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And then if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Nathan went to his house. So we see then Psalm 51 is a response after Nathan rebukes him. Now, there's a few other things I want us to see. First of all, not only do we have the capacity to sin greatly, but there are a few things that are underneath this. If you want to call up those points for me, please. First of all, we can see that our sin causes us to do stupid things. My, my father-in-law taught me the SMICE principle. You ever heard of the SMICE principle? S-M-Y-S. Sin makes you stupid. Because sin causes us to do stupid stuff. It does. It makes you stupid. And David was stupid. He's dumb. What he does is just not only just stupid, it's completely wrong. Not only does he he commit adultery, but he adds insult to injury by doing this. I mean, this was a scandal. Greater than any of the scandals that we have going on in our world today. And yet he's still considered a man after God's own heart. So sin makes you stupid. We all have the capacity to sin. It makes you stupid. Here's the second thing. It can bring great and unbelievable suffering. And not just to you. Don't you realize that your sin has repercussions? Not just in your life, but in the life of others. I mean, it hurt not only Bathsheba, but Uriah. This is a godly guy. I mean, he dies. And then David has a consequence for his action. He says that you will have the sword of the Lord will never depart from your house, and the child is going to die. I mean, David, this child's not only going to die, but he's going to suffer that. He knows that it's his fault. So it not only just brings, uh, you know, unbelievable suffering, but it does one more. It results in great and unbelievable shame. David was, he was, he, he knew what he had done. Now, the, now, what I want us to understand is not only does sin, we all have the capacity to sin, and this is what it does to us, but we're going to look within the psalm, and now I want to really dig in here. Like I said, we're going to skip through this rather quickly, 
and examining what it does. What are the consequences for our sin? Because sin does have consequences. It does. And that's the other second point that I want, that there are consequences to sin. And we saw firsthand in Samuel's, Nathan's rebuke of David that he said there's the consequences. But David is also showing in this psalm the internal, not only just internal, but physical consequences, spiritual consequences that he is experiencing firsthand. That's why we see here, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Watch me thoroughly. Watch me thoroughly. For first of all, he's saying, you know, actually skip down into to verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here's what sin does. And this is the first point that I want you to take home is this. It separates us from God. Isaiah 59 even talks about that and illustrates that, that for us perfectly. Isaiah 59 two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's why David's pleading, cast me not away, please. Don't take your spirit away from me. It's more dear to me than life. Please don't do it. He knows that he's separated from God. That's a consequence of our sin. That's what it happens. When I see individuals that say, I have a relationship with God and living in sin, you're total in denial. Because you are violating the very testimony of the word of God. So it makes a separation between us and God. Also, it does this. It soils the soul. Have mercy on me, O God, verse 1, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. He's feeling dirty on the inside. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'm stained. I can't get it off on my soul. It soils the soul. Thirdly, it saturates the mind. For I know my transgressions in verse 3. And my sin is ever before me. He's thinking about it all the time. He knows that he's done wrong. If, if you are a believer in Christ, and you know when you have sinned, you, it, it, it consumes you. It consumes you. The only way you can do it is dedicate, really sear your conscience. It's like a car alarm. Remember when car alarms first came out? Oh, it would go off. But after a while, we just got dead to it. Boop, 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 boop. Shut the window, honey. We get deadened to it. And God's saying, no, 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 don't. And see, David's not deadened to it. He knows. He says, my sin is ever before me. I'm thinking about it all the time. Even in Psalm 32, one of the other penitential psalms, it says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He couldn't let it go. It was always before him. That's a consequence of sin. Not only does it soil the soul, saturate the mind, but it also stains the conscience. Look at verse Four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And also in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He had known it. It stains the conscience. We can't quit thinking about it. Also, it secures our verdict. It reminds us that we are sinners. That's why David says, for in sin, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I was born a sinner, I know it, but then he goes on and he says, uh, hide your face not from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He knew that it had been written down, that it was a testimony against him. He even says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. He knew that he was guilty. He even talks about being God being justified in your words in verse 4 and blameless in your judgment. He knew that he was guilty. Do you know that you are guilty in the sight of God? That each one of us, man, is destined to die once and then face judgment. We don't like to talk about that in our world today. Not in our tolerant, equal society. No man has a person to judge the other person. That's not according to the word of God. That he is the only one that is entitled to right judgment. And David is saying, you're right. I make it a full confession. You are totally right, God. I am justified. I mean, you are justified in judging me. So it secures our verdict, but it also severs us from community. That's why he says, let me hear joy and gladness. He couldn't hear it anymore because he wasn't with God's people. Sin separates us from the community of God. I guarantee when people get into sin, the last thing they want to be, the last place they want to be is in church. Think about it. When you're in sin, you come up with a lot of reasons why you don't want to get up in the morning. Oh, it was daylight savings time. 
It was decaf coffee. We were out. I couldn't be there to worship right. I mean, we come up with whatever excuse we can find. Because sin separates us from the community of God. We don't want to hear the praises of God when we know that we are under conviction of sin. So it severs us from community. It also saddens the heart. Look at verse 8 again. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He is sad. Look at verse, even, verse 12. Restore to me the joy. He lost his joy. Why did he lose his joy? Because he had sinned. It saddens the heart. And it also sickens the body. Let the bones that you have broken. We see this principle illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When we do communion, we often read from this passage because Paul says, for those that take communion in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. And that's why he says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. he says to them, uh, first of all, he tells us to examine himself, but he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Meaning that the sickness was directly generated from God himself because people were high-handedly sitting in the face of God that God would bring physical suffering in an individual's life. Now, physical suffering isn't always indicative of of a person's sin, but it can be. We also see that illustrated in James chapter 5, when the man who is sick and on his deathbed, he says, let him call for the elders of the church, they will anoint him with oil, and the prayer made in faith will heal him. And it says then after, right after that, it says, and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. It's the understanding that his sin, his sickness, is coming from his sin. So it sickens the body. It also shakes our spirit. Sin can make us sick. Created me a clean heart of God and renew a right spirit within me. He, he didn't have a right spirit any longer. It, it shook its spirit right to the core. It also shatters our confidence. We can have no confidence before God. Look at verse 11 again. Cast me not away from your presence. He's like, God's going to send me away. I don't, if I don't have God behind me, then I have nothing. It's like when I was a little kid and I, would, I had these bigger boys on my block that would want to, I mean, they would threaten me. And my, my sister, I mean, my sister's eight years older than I am. I think I was eight years old. She was 16. They were 12. And uh, when, when she came around, <laughs> my little sister, they were fearful of her. And when I knew she was there, I had safety. I had confidence. They weren't going to hurt me because she would kick their butt. My sister is tough. I was eight, so don't excuse that. Tough guy now. <laughs> but had confidence. And when we don't have God in our corner, we have no confidence. That's why David's like, cast me not away. I have nothing. It shakes our confidence. It shatters it. It's like we're like Samson after his hair had shorn. The Lord was no longer with him. He had no strength to fight off other people. There was no confidence any longer. But it also sabotages our testimony. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He couldn't teach transgressors while he's a transgressor. He said, I have to be restored to teach him. Many of us, we don't realize that. When you sin, other people notice. Because you were to be salt and light. So when people see you sin, they're, not, they're either turned off or turned on to God. So what are people when they see you? Turned off or turned on to God? through your life. Sabotages our testimony. It also stops our praise. Look at verse 15. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. My mouth's sealed. I can't praise you when I'm in the midst of sin. It stops our praise. We don't want to praise God. We can't praise God when our spirit's not right. I mean, we can sing the words, but our heart's not there. We don't benefit. Because remember, God communicates its presence to His people when we are worshiping Him, and you can experience that presence when you are in the midst of sin. Now, many of you might be wondering yourself, oh great, I know, I know I've sinned, okay? I've got that. I'm like, David, you're justified. What do I do now? Well, that's where this, this psalm, this area 51, is for us to reconnect. There's hope here. There is a way to come back after sinning. You can make a comeback. It's time to make a comeback. God has enabled us to make a comeback. That's why this is here for us, that we can make a comeback. And making a comeback involves 
approaching God in a spirit of contrition. Look at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice. It's not about what I give you, how much I pledge, what I offer. I'm not trying to make a deal with you. Don't try to make a deal with God. Or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 2 Corinthians 7.10 calls it this. Godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See, that's why some people are just grieved they got caught. They really don't care about God at all. They're just grieved that they got caught. But see, David got caught, but he was grieved in his heart because it just wasn't about the social ramifications. It was because he knew that he'd sinned in the face of God. That's why he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Had he sinned against Uriah and even Joab? Because Joab became a a complicit accomplice, accomplice in the midst of this scandalous plot. But he's saying, ultimately, all sin is done in the face of God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Not that I didn't sin against these people, but this is the one that matters the most. I mean, many of us think about the people we hurt, but we don't think about God. That's what it's about. It's about sinning against God. So he comes in an act of a spirit of contrition. David does. This is where we see that he's a man after God's own heart. That he understood that he was guilty. And he comes repentant. He has godly grief. He confesses his sins to God. And that's the next step after godly grief. Confessing your sins to God. That's why he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and sinned did my mother conceive me. Or hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. My transgressions are all before you. You see that just throughout the, the passage. He's making a full confession to God. C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said this, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin. The sin that is left over without any excuse after allowances have been made. And seeing it in all its horror, in all its dirt, in all its meanness and malice, nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That and only that is forgiveness. And that we can always have from God if we ask for it. He was honest. He was transparent. He laid it on the table. He didn't blame it on anybody else. He didn't say, like Adam did, Lord, it was the woman you gave me. Or Lord, why did you let her be out on the roof so I could see her? Or it was his fault. I, didn't, I, I stayed home from the army. He didn't blame it from on anybody. He took full responsibility and he made a full confession for his sin. Now, are you willing to do that? Or are you just willing to confess the so-called okay and acceptable sins in a public environment? You say, well, you accept the one, you say the ones that are just okay, but you won't really give him your heart. That's why David says to him, you desire truth in your inmost being. It's in the depth of who we are. Don't hold on to your sin. Confess it freely. Lay it out. Have you confessed? And who do you confess to? You confess to God. First of all, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we are to confess to one another. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, as it says in James chapter 5. But many of us are holding on to our sins. We're trying to cover it. Quit! If you feel the conviction of your sin, consider it a delight because God's not through with you. He is placing His Holy Spirit's finger on you so you confess your sin and you can be restored to right relationship with God. And I guarantee everybody in this room has some type of sin. Are you confessing? Are you doing business with God? Are you trying to cover it up? Like David tried to. But when David covered it up, when he tried to initiate the whole scandal and then the murder plot for Uriah, he eventually comes forth and he admits it. And then he is humble before God. He humiliates himself before God. God. And then after that, after you have come in a spirit of contrition, you have confessed your sins, then allow God to cleanse you. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, that's why David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. See, it was a branch that was done in ceremonial purposes, most famously done on the night of the Exodus. They would take the lamb's blood and take the hyssop and it would apply to the lamb's blood of the door frame so death would pass him over. So in essence, it's a prefigurement because we now are beneficiaries of Christ's atoning death and His blood covers over our sin. So the only purge and atonement that we can have is exactly what Al Mohler said to Anthony Weiner. It's only through Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's available to Jew and Gentile, male or female, slave or Greek. It doesn't matter what your background is and where you came from. The atonement of Christ can be for you. 
totally for you. And he will cleanse your sin. That's the only way. That's why he says, purge me. I have to have atonement. Cleanse me with hyssop. I can't be atoned any other way unless you do it, God. I can't be right with you unless you do it. Because sin is ultimately in the face of God. And there has to be atonement. And I know it. And I have to be clean with his hyssop. I can't be clean any other way. And only through Jesus Christ's blood, appealing and cleansing your conscience, can you be right with God. That's the only way. This world just doesn't believe in that any longer. It's therapy. We need psychologists. We need more treatment. But most of the time, what is needed is repentance and renewal. Allow God to cleanse you. Al Mohler was right. Dear Congressman Weiner. there is no effective treatment for sin, only atonement found in Jesus Christ. That's why David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. You have to cleanse me. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with his Make atonement, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That God can make you new. Can you believe that? I mean, do you believe that today? That no matter how big your sin is in the sight of God, no matter what you've done, that Jesus Christ can forgive you and make you white as snow? That you no longer have to bear the penalty for your sin? That God himself has by giving his son to die on the cross for you? That he took the wrath of God that you deserved upon himself because of his love for you? Because God so loved the world. The most amazing verse in all of Scripture, easily the most famous, it's signs are shown at football games, baseball games, all over the place. Even the worst sinner at least is familiar with John 3.16. But it's a sacred in its simplicity and what it does to us, that it cleanses us, that God gave His Son for us is so simple that a child can understand, and it's so holy, so sacred, and so unbelievable that we dare not gloss it over. To know that God would do something like that reveals how serious His love is. And neglect, to neglect such an act, to ignore it or marginalize it, is to invite a response that is in exact proportion to His love. I mean, that God would love you. I'm amazed that when I, when I think of love, I have to think of my wife. And that when I saw her, I couldn't believe how beautiful she was. And, and then as we got to know one another and to hear her say for the first time, I love you, I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it, that she would decide to love me. Now think about God. It says, while we were still yet enemies, still yet sinners, children of wrath, that God lavished his love upon us, that God would love you even in the midst of iniquity, that he would send his son to die on your behalf is amazing. Is amazing. And how do we respond to that life-giving act? Well, you invite him into your life. You say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you confess. Not the confession is just of sin, but says, whoever confesses Jesus is Lord. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 10. And then what do you do? You celebrate. It's okay. That's my last point that I want to leave us with today. Celebrate your restoration. That's why David could say, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And uphold with me a willing spirit. I want to be joyous in your presence because I know only through you is atonement found. Only through you can I find forgiveness. Only through you can my sins be washed away as the blood of Christ is applied to the sin of my own heart. And then you celebrate. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. The sacred simplicity of the gospel is available to all who come to Him in repentance and faith. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? If not, don't wait any longer. Don't. As Paul wrote, for he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If God is convicting your heart, there's sin in your life. Don't hold on. Don't leave this place until you have done business with God. Whether you're a sinner or a saint, 
you need to do business. If you know that you're a saint, that you have just given yourself over to sin and let it have a presence and a foothold in your life, confess it and He will forgive it. And if you're a sinner that doesn't have Christ, then you can invite Jesus into your life right now and ask Him to save you and He will save and transform you. I guarantee it. He loved you so much that He gave His Son to die for you. Don't neglect it, don't ignore it, and don't wait. Place your faith in Him if you haven't done so already today. Now, let's close in prayer. And if you want to, if you say, I know that I've messed up and you're a, you're a saint. I mean, you are a saint in that you're not living a saintful life, but God has made you a saint by applying His blood to your life, but yet you know you have given yourself over to your sin, then I'm going to lead you in a prayer of confession. And if you're an individual, you know that you have not yet trusted in Christ, then I'm going to lead you in a prayer for that. And I invite you to trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, we come to You broken, like David did, because a broken and contrite spirit or heart you will not despise. Lord, you are the only one that create, can create in us a clean heart. And Lord, for those today that are here, that are individuals who have already trusted in you a long time over, and yet they know that they have let sin have a foothold in their life, Lord, I pray that they might confession. They might say to you, Lord, I know my sin. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, please forgive me for what I've done. I ask you to forgive me by applying. I confess my sin to you now, and I take the promise that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I thank you for cleansing me. And for those of you who have, want to trust in Christ that you have not already, say, Lord God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know that I've sinned against you. I invite you into my life. I place my trust and hope in you to forgive me of my sins and save me and give me life and purpose and direction. Cleanse me. Let me rejoice in this new salvation. And I thank you for what you have done for me, that you died on the cross for my sins. I'm amazed, Lord. And thank you for this gift of life. And Lord, for those that are here today, all of us, may we all be renewed in the spirit of our hearts. May we truly exhibit and exude joy as we walk in the newness of life that you have given us. Lord, may we not be down in the doldrums. May we not let our circumstances dictate our emotion. But may we continually be founded upon you, the one true rock of our salvation. Lord, we know that you are that rock that you've given us hope, that you've given us life, and that you've given us purpose, and you've placed your spirit within our lives to draw us close to you, to convict us of sin, to chastise us when we have gone the wrong way. And Lord, may we truly, continually come before you confessing our sin and turning from it, forsaking it, and turning to your word, embracing it, and then delighting in that fact that other people might know who you are and embrace you, the one true living God. We thank you and we praise you for Area 51. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me close us. I'm just realizing we went over a little bit of time today. Uh, instead of having our closing song, let's just stand for the closing of our service. We do want to invite you back for our Adult Bible Fellowship as we continue our series called The Truth Project. If you've not been a participant in that yet, I would ask you to please come back and watch this series with us as we discuss it, as we try to look at all of life from a Christian worldview. What does that mean, and how can we be Christians in the midst of our world today? I also remind you of our mentor conference we have coming up this weekend. It's going to be at the Sugar Grove campus. This is for the men. The fathers in the house are not fathers. It's about how to be a mentor. We're going to be working with some of the ch children in the community. Uh, it'll be on Friday night, Saturday night. It should be a great time of fellowship, guy time, guys night out, but working with people in a Christ-like manner. So I'd really encourage you to sign up, and you can sign up online. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our great God, you who have chosen to give your son to die on our behalf, may you be praised as we go forth now and forevermore. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.